The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Where Were You in 92 is a production of iHeartRadio. There was no question that Nevermind opened up a wide commercial lane for punk-influenced rock that hadn't existed before. And it marginalized, you know, a substantial percentage of some of the so-called hair bands. A lot of bands didn't survive the transition. Welcome to Where Are You in 92, a podcast in which I, your host, Jason Lanfier, look back at the major hits, one-hit wonders, shocking news stories, and irresistible scandals that shaped what might be the wildest, most eclectic, most controversial 12 months of music ever. This week, part two of the extraordinary tale of Guns N' Roses' epic 1992 power ballad, November Rain, and its equally epic video, which at the time of its release became the most expensive music video ever made. The song may have been a monster hit, but it was also a swan song for the band and for all the hair bands who had dominated MTV and rock radio. As Nirvana's grunge anthem, Smells Like Teen Spirit, burst onto the scene and birthed an icon, GNR, who'd been one of the most popular acts in the world, would begin to unravel and lose their grip on the spotlight. In this episode, we explore the simmering tension between Guns N' Roses singer Axl Rose and Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain, whose infamous feud reached a fever pitch at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards, a night that for many reasons has become legendary. We'll also examine how grunge left heavy metal for dead and changed the music landscape, and why Axl ditched women for dolphins. Plus, former Nirvana manager Danny Goldberg joins us to share his side of the story. This is the fascinating saga of hair metal taking its last glorious gasp as grunge and alternatives swept America. The year was 1992. That previous fall, Heavy metal giants Guns N' Roses had simultaneously released their sprawling dual albums Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, 30 tracks spanning more than two and a half hours. They were their first proper studio albums of new material since 1987's massive hit Appetite for Destruction. Because of its lead single You Could Be Mine, which had been featured in the 1991 blockbuster flick Terminator 2, Use Your Illusion 2 was slightly more popular than Use Your Illusion 1 debuting at number one on the Billboard album charts. However, just behind it at number two was Use Your Illusion 1. The LPs would eventually be certified seven times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. Use Your Illusion 1 would earn a Grammy nomination for Best Hard Rock Performance with Vocal. GNR would lose to Van Halen. The biggest hit from both albums was the colossal, ornate, nine-minute power ballad, November Rain, which at the time was the longest song in history to enter the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked at number three, behind TLC's Baby 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 at number two, 
and Boys to Men's End of the Road at number one. It's not surprising given that R&B was making a strong showing on the charts in the early 90s. Rock, at least the big-haired, testosterone-fueled glam metal that GNR and its brethren had been churning out for several years, was losing its luster. By 1992, bands like Poison, Skid Row, Slaughter, Warrant, and Winger were becoming punchlines. Patty Galuzzi, former senior vice president of music and talent at MTV, was in charge of MTV's music video programming at the time and remembers the tides turning. She recalls Tom Freston, then CEO of MTV Networks, beginning to say he hated hair bands and wanted to play their music less. She was a big fan of more alternative rock acts like R.E.M., so this was music to her ears. She was especially tired of these hairband suggestive, smutty videos, which often portrayed women as bimbos and sex objects. There definitely was a moment when, you know, I was watching the video for Warrant Cherry Pie, where the woman is sitting and the piece of cherry pie falls onto her crotch in the video, where you think, damn. <laughs> and then there's another shot where it's like a hose suddenly spurts, right? And you think, this is, this is not very subtle. Yeah, the video for Warren's cherry pie is pretty lewd and ludicrous. Most of the hairband videos were. But the video for Guns N' Roses' November Rain was in a class of its own, ludicrous and not very subtle in a different way. Sure, singer Axl Rose's girlfriend at the time, supermodel Stephanie Seymour, wore that mullet wedding dress, the front of which was mad short and revealed her garter. But this video wasn't about sex. Inspired by Rose's pal Del James's macabre short story, Without You, it was about love, marriage, betrayal, death, and profound grief. With its multiple locations, more than a thousand extras, and a storyline that included two churches, a wedding, a funeral, so much rain, and a man diving into a cake, our hero Steve Cottrell, as we learned last week, it was off the rails in scope and ambition. And with a reported price tag of $1.5 million, it was also the most expensive video of all time when it was released. As its director, Andy Morahan, told us, Rose wouldn't have it any other way. The singer understood the power of the music video, not only as an art form, but as a promotional tool. Getting massive exposure through heavy rotation on MTV meant selling more records and more tickets. Eric Weisbard is a music critic, a professor, and the author of an entire book on User Illusion 1 and 2, which he released as part of the 33 and a Third music book series in 2007, the same year Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash released his memoir, Slash. While Weisbard is quick to point out how flawed the dual albums are, they've had a special place in his heart since they came out. At the time, he was writing in the San Francisco Bay Area after having worked as a college DJ. Most of his friends and peers didn't share his affinity for the records. They were vibing on groups like R.E.M. and rising grunge acts like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and Nirvana, who were more influenced by punk and underground rock. They regarded grunge as superior to heavy metal, more cerebral, nuanced, authentic. As Wise Bard recalls, I had been a college radio DJ playing the kinds of bands that Nirvana idolized. You know, I, it was not a surprise to me when Kurt Cobain covered um, the Vaselines. But his taste extended beyond what he blasted at the station. He still dug GNR. Even this new, grand, extravagant, melodramatic version of Axl Rose. So I had this odd experience as Nirvana broke of seeing Guns N' Roses as the losers at that moment and feeling a certain sense of empathy for them as they um, quickly hit their sort of Norma Desmond and Sunset Boulevard moment of feeling like um, the rock world had gotten smaller. It wasn't them. Even if Guns N' Roses were selling a shit ton of records and concert tickets, their popularity and domination were starting to wane, especially after the magnitude, genre-melding experimentation, and theatrics of Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, with all their pianos, horns, choirs, and synthesized strings. This fanciful swerve isolated some rock purists. Why did one-time badass Axl Rose suddenly have such a hard-on for Elton John and Spoonie Balladry? Why were his videos suddenly so over-the-top? And why the fuck was some dude throwing himself into a wedding cake? 
you had a few things happening at the same moment. One is you had a band that attained such enormous success that it took a while for the next record to come out and had the natural tendency to then want to also prove they could do something new. Um, you had the MTV factor, which is in that era, the assumption was that when you made an album, the release of that album was just the starting point because over a two or three year period, the videos from that album, a la Thriller in the 80s, would redefine the album visually, metaphorically, by putting these gigantic production numbers around the songs on the album. And you had the first rumblings of alternative rock questioning 80s rock values. Those 80s values included excess, more money, more drugs, more bimbos, more hair, more makeup, more pageantry, more guitar solos, as we've learned three in November Rain alone, all of which was beginning to feel a bit outdated. With this shift in taste, this explosion of alternative and grunge, this changing of the guard, rock was getting smaller, more introspective, stripped down, feedbacky, rougher, rawer, and more real. And Rob Tannenbaum and Craig Marx's 2011 book, I Want My MTV, The Uncensored Story of the Music Video Revolution, Guns N' Roses' former manager, Alan Niven, called the cost of the November Rain video a quote-unquote preposterous waste of money. Worse, Niven's successor, Doug Goldstein, who was managing GNR during the Illusion Records in the making of the November Rain video, has said Rose's constant tardiness doubled the cost of its production. Record executive Bill Bennett called the group's videos quote-unquote bloated, saying in I Want My MTV that, quote, the band was so big, they did whatever they wanted. Meanwhile, Dave Grohl, the former drummer for Nirvana and current frontman of Foo Fighters, considers November Rain something of a disaster piece. When a musician starts to use the phrase mini-movie, it's time to quit, he says in I Want My MTV. Some videos I enjoyed just because they were train wrecks, like November Rain. I looked forward to seeing that on TV because I didn't need those nine minutes of my life anymore. Dang. I mean, that deserves a place in the National Museum of American History for being the greatest backhanded compliment ever uttered in this 246-year-old country. Still, if Morahan is the first to admit the November Rain video cost an insane amount of money, he's also quick to defend its grandeur and goofiness. In his mind, detractors who dismissed or mocked it just didn't get it. But um, it was supposed to be a surreal nightmare. You know, the rain is too heavy, but that's the whole point. The idea of people, you know, pulling tablecloths off and jumping through cakes. I know some people go, oh, I hate that. It's so over the top. It's deliberately supposed to be a kind of allegory, a metaphorical bad dream. You know, that's entirely how it was designed. Given the decadent, larger-than-life nature of the track itself, Morahan says he had no choice but to make its visual counterpart decadent and larger than life. I think people should have a, a better kind of perspective of the irony of it. Because it's a melodramatic song. That was the kind of whole point. When that refrain comes in with the, you know, the, you know, the, the orchestra, you know, it's all melodramatic. It's all completely over the top. So in a sense, it's supposed to be a celebration of that OTT. I mean, we were blurring the lines of what is reality and what is not reality. Eric Weisbard was very content to lose himself in November Rain's celebration of the OTT. As he writes in his book on User Illusion 1 and 2, quote, the indulgences turned out to be refulgences. Suddenly, the orchestra that Axel had employed like Jay Gatsby trying to impress Daisy starts getting fierce. The video, with images of the young bride turned into a corpse, only added to the gothic aura of November Rain. But the non-believers didn't see the charm in it. The New York Times music critic John Perellis, a vocal non-fan, gave the Use Your Illusion albums an okay review, writing, quote, At its ugliest, the band has become a vindictive underdog, lashing out at anyone who dares to puncture its vanity. Chicago critic Don McLeese asserted that the album suffered when, quote, Axl Rose is emptying his head or bearing his soul, and said November Rain sounded like, quote, Neil Diamond's next Vegas engagement. The band's reputation, 
specifically Rose's reputation, only stoked the anti-GNR flames. He was unpredictable, unchecked, unruly, a loose cannon. After buying a big house in the hills and regretting it, he reportedly shattered all its windows, pushed a $38,000 piano through the side of it, and totaled its fireplace. This behavior sounds eerily familiar to that of Del James's Without You character, Main Man, who you'll recall also trashed his apartment after his ex-girlfriend shot herself. Rose would also come after audience members, like he did in Missouri, before a riot ensued there. And he'd storm off stage, abruptly ending performances. Many deemed him a diva, a spoiled brat, a misogynist, an abuser, a racist, a homophobe, a wastrel, a criminal, and just full of shit. Meanwhile, grunge, and Nirvana in particular, had been anointed the sound of the new generation. And Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain, the voice of that generation. Grunge showed up to chuck that unchecked 80s excess, to crack its artifice, to spit in its face. Nirvana's 1991 grunge touchstone, Nevermind, was saying just that. Never mind all this pomp and lavish nonsense. Never mind greed and surface-level garbage. As punk forefathers, the Sex Pistols, had declared 15 years before, never mind the bollocks. Grunge was the new punk, anti-establishment, but it also enthralled mainstream listeners, winning over MTV and radio and their key demographics, the youth. Unlike the newly married, ill-fated fictional couple played by Axl Rose and Stephanie Seymour in the November Rain video, Nirvana could have their wedding cake and eat it too. Even if they didn't like MTV and what they considered its crappy values, they wanted to make an impact and make it period, so they played the game. As Rob Tannenbaum and Craig Marks write in I Want My MTV, Nirvana didn't kill radio stars, they joined them. The groundbreaking video for Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit depicted a high school pep rally transforming into a destructive teenage uprising. When it landed in heavy rotation on MTV, Everybody wanted to emulate them. Hair metal looked like a clown show. Axl Rose wasn't quite wearing the big red nose. He and Guns N' Roses had shown their range and somewhat transcended that genre. But other bands weren't so lucky. As Kip Winger, the singer of Winger, says in I Want My MTV, quote, So I watched the Smells Like Teen Spirit video, and I thought, all right, we're finished. We all knew it. It was obvious. MTV wiped the slate. Bands like Winger, Poison, and Warrant became the dude at the party with tuna breath. No one wanted them or their videos directors invited. He remains proud of his work on November Rain, but director Andy Morahan, too, could see the writing on the wall. As he says, and I want my MTV, quote, In a way, Guns N' Roses, myself, we became the dinosaurs, the kind of artists punk rockers hated. We'd become overblown and indulgent and kind of stupid. And then Nirvana happened and suddenly everything was grunge and cheap and thank God for it, you know? In 1992, suddenly MTV needed Nirvana as much as Nirvana needed MTV. So what did Axl Rose think of all this? And what did Kurt Cobain think of Guns N' Roses? Well, as you can imagine, this is where the story gets complicated and uncomfortable. Up next, after the break, we'll delve into the tension between the reigning king of hair metal and the new prince of grunge. It's a tale of clashing philosophies, of swollen pride and bruised egos, of an inevitable friction that would climax with a nasty showdown at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards, a night that has become legendary. I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. 
Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We've taken a deep, wet dive into Guns N' Roses' epic 1992 video, November Rain. But before singer Axl Rose and director Andy Morahan crafted that opulent spectacle, they worked on part one of the video trilogy November Rain Belongs To, the 1991 video for the Gunner single Don't Cry. As we discussed in last week's episode, Don't Cry set the table for the doomed relationship between the fictional versions of Axl Rose and his then-girlfriend Stephanie Seymour. In case you forgot, let me refresh your memory. He talks to other women, she gets jealous and cuffs some random chick at a bar. Axel and Stephanie fight over a gun. Axel prances around in a pair of teeny tiny jorts on a rooftop under the glow of helicopter lights. Axel gets some regression therapy. Slash drives a car off a cliff, but because he is a literal rock god, he emerges from the blazing debris shirtless, unscathed, and ready to shred. People, this man's heart stopped for eight full minutes and he lived to tell. He is unstoppable and invincible. Anyway, as usual when talking about a Guns N' Roses video, I digress. You see, Don't Cry may not offer up the same kind of splendor and OTT-ness as November Rain, but it's still significant for at least one reason. At around the 3 minute 45 second mark, in a scene featuring Axel lying on a table while his, surprise, super hot, lady therapist sits in a chair taking notes, we see a baseball cap by his side. The logo on it is instantly recognizable today. You've seen it on countless t-shirts, hoodies, and other paraphernalia. It reads in big, sharp letters, Nirvana. Rose was a fan of Nirvana, who had wound up at GNR's label Geffen. Totally dug what they've been doing up to this point. Seems he felt there was plenty of room in the rocker sandbox for both bands. This was rock. The more rock, the better. Problem was, Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain did not reciprocate the goodwill. Says Don't Cry in November Rain director Andy Morahan. But ill feeling wasn't mutual because, you know, these new, it's like the pistols, you know. When you got a new band and the grunts, you know, they just want to blow everyone away. You know, what they consider to be the excess of rock and roll, they wanted to blow away. That's just a cyclical thing in music. Cobain even shaded GNR in interviews while promoting Nevermind. Said Cobain to Seconds Magazine, quote, We're not your typical Guns N' Roses type of band that has absolutely nothing to say. Whew, nothing to say. Not even over the course of the 30 tracks and two-plus hours that made up their heaving, insanely ambitious dual albums. Cobain would utter even harsher words to Michael Azarad in his 1993 biography, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. His role has been played for years, Cobain said of Rose. Ever since the beginning of rock and roll, there's been an Axl Rose. And it's just boring. It's totally boring to me. Why it's such a fresh and new thing in his eyes is obviously because it's happening to him personally. And he's such an egotistical person that he thinks that the whole world owes him something. Cobain drew a line in that sandbox. 
a demarcation between the real rebels and the so-called rebels, between real rock and cock rock, between us and them. GNR and those other hairbands were trifles. In Cobain's mind, they represented not the scrappy underdog, but rather the uber-macho, hostile, belligerent bullies who'd sneer at a sensitive boy like Cobain before kicking his ass. Meanwhile, the fact that many of those glam metal bands also flaunted crazy big hair and faces covered in makeup rendered them laughable caricatures. This wasn't rock, Cobain thought. This was the circus. At first, Rose was undeterred, inviting Nirvana to play at his 30th birthday party. Yeah, that wasn't happening. The following year, he invited the band to play with Guns N' Roses and Metallica on their big stadium tour. According to former Nirvana drummer David Grohl, Rose was calling Cobain constantly to persuade him to join GNR on the road. But Cobain didn't want to be associated with them, didn't like what he thought they stood for. Turns out, as we know from his love of piano-based ballads at the time, Rose was pretty sensitive himself. Cobain rebuffing him left him feeling wounded. Says Morahan. And I think he was genuinely surprised at the animosity that came from that band to him. Because I think in his own mind, he didn't see much difference, Mm. you know? And I think he was a bit shocked by that. I think he was hurt by that, actually. As was often the case with Rose, the hurt turned to anger and vitriol. Rose began trash-talking Cobain in concerts, saying his daughter with fellow rocker and whole singer Courtney Love, Frances Bean, would have birth defects because of Love's drug abuse. Rose belittled Cobain's band and their cooler-than-thou Seattle rock brethren, saying, as Rolling Stone reported, that the only thing the term alternative meant to him was, quote, someone like Kurt Cobain in Nirvana, who is basically a junkie with a junkie wife. And if the baby's born deformed, I think they both ought to go to prison. Rose had kept his cool for a while. And you could certainly argue that Mr. Sensitive Cobain had started it. But now Rose was living up to the dickhead stereotypes Cobain had associated him with in the press. After Nirvana turned down GNR's invitation to join them for their 1992 stadium shows, a miffed Rose told Metallic's magazine, quote, they would rather sit at home and shoot heroin with their bitch wives than tour with us. So yeah, folks, this shit was like the real housewives of rock and roll. Like the housewives on a fuck ton of drugs, which is scary. And what was about to go down were some serious season finale-worthy shenanigans. So go pour yourself another whiskey and buckle up. It was September 9th, 1992, just about two weeks before Guns N' Roses' lead guitarist Slash would nearly die from a drug overdose in a hotel in San Francisco. The 1992 MTV Video Music Awards were hosted by Saturday Night Live star Dana Carvey at UCLA's Pauley Pavilion in Los Angeles. The network sold some 6,000 tickets to the public to amp up the proceedings, promising that for the first time, the ceremony would be totally live. The lineup of performers for the awards was such a perfect encapsulation of just how batshit music was in 1992. Let me set the scene because this thing was all over the place. I mean, every lunch table was represented. You had the hippies, aka the Black Crows, Rock's new cool kids, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and Red Hot Chili Peppers, It Girls and Funky Divas, and Vogue, classic rock dads, Elton John and Eric Clapton, there to chaperone, Hopeless softy Brian Adams. Michael Jackson beamed in from his dangerous tour in London to sing his clumsy race relations single Black or White. You 2 beamed in via satellite from Michigan to do even better than the real thing, with Dana Carvey dressed as Garth from Wayne's World joining them on drums at the actual show. You had Def Leppard fast becoming the losers while trying to remind the audience they were the real deal with a song called Let's Get Rocked. Oof. Bobby Brown was there to sing his horny nothing burger humping around. And you had Guns N' Roses. Presenters included the likes of Eddie Murphy, David Spade, Andrew Dice Clay, Ice-T and Metallica, Marky Mark Wahlberg, then trying his hand at rap, Vanessa Williams, and Beverly Hills N0210 star Luke Perry, along with shock jock Howard Stern as his gassy superhero character, Fartman. Cobain, in rehab for heroin at the time, considered bailing on the whole thing. He was sick. He now had a newborn. 
He and Courtney Love were still reeling after a damaging Vanity Fair article that implied Love was doing heroin while pregnant. She'd reveal years later in the 2015 documentary Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, that she had. And as much as he wanted the exposure, MTV sort of sucked anyway. Says former Nirvana manager Danny Goldberg. It was a huge circus. He wanted to go into rehab. He didn't want to do the show. Uh, he uh, he uh, didn't like the idea of award shows. And, um, you know, I tried to give him an honest assessment of what it would mean to MTV, you know, one way or the other. and that if he cared about his relationship with them, this was certainly the most important thing to them because it was their highest rated show of the year and it affected the reputation of the big executives there, how that show did. So so he he agreed to do it. And then once he agreed to do it, um, he wanted to be great. Nirvana had been asked to perform their nominated hit, Smells Like Teen Spirit. But Cobain wanted to tease new material, specifically a song called Rape Me. MTV higher-ups weren't about to greenlight that. So he, uh, at rehearsal, he did uh, Rape Me, and Judy McGrath, who was president of MTV, called me and just, just very upset. She said, I can't, I can't have uh, this, this song about rape. It's, it's not, we're not going to air it. I said, Judy, it's an anti-rape song. Do you read Kurt Cobain's last hundred interviews. He's a feminist. He had an anti-rape song on Nevermind called Polly. There's, there's no possibility that anyone would think that he's... He's, and she said, I don't, I don't care. It's the word rape. I, I don't uh, know. So I had to call him and tell him this. And he basically just said, well, fuck it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here. We're here to kiss MTV's ass anyway. So we'll do what they want. As VMA's producer Joe Gallen explains in the book, I Want My MTV, the network replaced Nirvana with the Black Crows to open the show to lower the risk of a fiasco. Nirvana agreed to perform the Nevermind track Lithium instead. But after being introduced before they're set at the show, the band started playing the beginning of Rape Me. In the book, Amy Finnerty, an MTV programming exec at the time and a big Nirvana fan, recalls briefly freaking out with MTV president Judy McGrath at the awards when those first chords of Rape Me kick in. All they could do was hope. She locked eyes with our stage manager and said, no, leave it, leave it, Finnerty says. As soon as they launched into Lithium, the two of us just cracked up. We were so relieved. But if MTV was scared of what Nirvana might do, Cobain had his own moment of panic that evening. The tension between GNR and Nirvana was bubbling and bubbling and would boil over that night at the VMAs, says Goldberg. I mean, first of all, Guns N' Roses were the biggest band on Geffen Records until Nevermind came out. And it was weird because prior to Nevermind coming out, Axl Rose was 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 a fan of the album. And then at the gig that, that Nirvana did after Nevermind came out in Los Angeles, which was uh, very widely attended by people in the music business because it was like the talk of the biz. Eddie Rosenblatt, again, the president of Geffen, asked me if he could bring Axl Rose backstage to to meet Kurt. And Kurt didn't want to meet him, so we contrived this whole charade where we pretended Kurt had left the dressing room and then I brought them in the dressing room that Kurt wasn't in. This duplicity, on top of Nirvana declining GNR's offers and dissing them in the press. Meanwhile, Rose had been doing his own dissing, of which Courtney Love was well aware. That night at the VMAs, before their performances, while the Gunners and Nirvana, an unofficial Nirvana member, Love, were backstage, she decided to take a harpoon to the big elephant in the room. Walking past Rose and his supermodel girlfriend, Stephanie Seymour, love let loose. She says, uh, hey, Axel, want to be godfather to our baby? Come and say hi. And, you know, it was grumpy, grumpy. And then Stephanie um, Seymour says to, to Courtney, are you a model? And Courtney looks at her and says, no, are you a brain surgeon? So, so uh, or no, are you a rocket scientist? I, I forget which it was. Pretty sure it was a rocket scientist. So Axel Rose came over and said, yeah, you know, shut your woman up or I'll, you know, put you on the pavement, you know, Kurt, like, you know, was first of all, very upset by it. He was very vulnerable anyway about anything involving his daughter and somebody who'd been insulting his wife. And plus he, he knew it was a good story and he told it with relish and said, uh, shut up, bitch. But like, obviously mocking what a macho guy would do, not being that guy. Witnesses recall everyone laughing at Rose's macho posturing. 
It was like the high school bully losing his power, backing down, and walking away in the cafeteria. Amy Finnerty remembers later seeing GNR roadies and bassist Duff McKagan shaking Nirvana's trailer and screaming for them to stop because Love and the baby were in it. Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic and McKagan nearly got into a fistfight during the confrontation. Goldberg says that before Nirvana went out to perform, Cobain passed a stage set up for Guns N' Roses and spit on Axl Rose's keyboard. At the end of Nirvana's raucous performance of Lithium, after Novoselic threw his guitar into the air and it came down, whacked him in the head and knocked him to the ground, after Cobain chucked his own guitar and toppled over some speakers, Dave Grohl took the microphone and proceeded to taunt Rose, saying in a bratty, childish voice, Hi Axel, hi Axel, where's Axel? The crowd went crazy. The 1992 VMAs concluded with Guns N' Roses delivering a nearly 10-minute performance of November Rain, backed this time by actual strings, as well as woodwinds, horns, and a full orchestra. Rose sat at one piano, while Elton John, his hero, and a major source of inspiration for the Use Your Illusion albums, sat across from him at another. Slash powered through his third, darker guitar solo, The Funeral Dirge, atop Rose's piano. Playing a beloved song he'd been painstakingly toiling over for years, with a legend he idolized to a packed venue of MTV watchers after winning the coveted Video Vanguard Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award, that same night? If this moment wasn't the apex of Axl Rose's career, it's got to be right up there. But it's hard to watch it now, knowing everything that happened after, without seeing it as Guns N' Roses' swan song, their epic farewell as they began to fade from the spotlight. November Rain would be GNR's final top 10 hit, and that evening would mark the last time the group would win or be nominated for a VMA. Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 would be their last albums of original studio material until 2008. 17 years is a long time to make a record. Grunge and Alternative would take over rock and even much of Top 40 radio for much of the 90s. Says Robin Petering, co-host of Nothing Lasts Forever, the November Rain podcast, with more than 80 episodes and counting. It, we say at the 92 VMAs, when Nirvana played lithium and broke their guitar, like, changed everything. They mm -hmm. couldn't, and Guns N' Roses closed with the dueling piano with Elton John. People did not want that. You know, it was just fully, it was over, like, right then and there. Um, changing of the guard like really really you can pin it down to that moment it was the end of an era they had brought in their sound and set themselves apart from the hairbands of the 80s soaring to the stratosphere to become one of the most famous acts in the world but for many the theatrics of guns and roses performances and videos and of axel rose's offstage antics had started to feel dated bloated and insincere if gnr were losing their relevance other heavy metal bands didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of surviving. Duff Leppard would enjoy their last top 40 hits in 1992. Their manager at the time, Peter Mensch, has said he knew they were basically over after their set that night at the VMAs. Though Firehouse won the award for favorite new heavy metal hard rock artists at the 1992 American Music Awards, they too would lose momentum after that year, because by then, the genre was all but dead. In a sense, they were the holdovers of glam metal. Their 1985 power ballad, I Live My Life For You, reached number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100. It's widely considered the last 80s-style hair metal track to make a decent showing on the charts. As 1992 came to a close, Kurt Cobain was still bitter and frank when conversation turned to Guns N' Roses. He'd been very open and colorful to the press about the altercation at the VMAs, claiming, quote, 20 bodyguards had surrounded a menacing Rose when Cobain had a little helpless child in his arms. Novoselic added fuel to the fire, sniping that Guns N' Roses, quote, want you to buy their packaged rebellion of sitting on a Harley Davidson while you play a piano with a 41-piece orchestra, just like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did in 1978. They painted Rose as a villain and themselves as heroes. It worked in the band's favor uh, substantially. It was a little weird, but Kurt quickly, through the alchemy that was in his 
rock genius brain turned it into uh, rock and roll gold. In a widely publicized interview with LGBTQ magazine The Advocate in December that year, Cobain addressed his nasty VMA showdown with Axl Rose and called him a, quote, fucking sexist and a racist and a homophobe. GNR had already taken some heat from ACT UP earlier that year when the organization, founded to end the AIDS crisis, called for the band to be dropped from the Freddie Mercury tribute concert because Rose had used the slur faggots and their song One in a Million. Cobain was redrawing that line in the sand. You can't be on his side and be on our side, he said in his advocate interview. I'm sorry that I have to divide this up like this, but it's something you can't ignore. And besides, they can't write good music. He'd also tell Singapore magazine Big O, quote, I don't want to sound pretentious, but it's a crusade to me. What are they rebelling against? Rebelling is standing up to people like Guns N' Roses. Rock and punk fans felt compelled to take a position. Team Kurt or Team Axel? Given the way Rose was coming across in the press, and given the direction in which Guns N' Roses' music was heading, while the rest of rock seemed to be heading in a different one, for many, the choice was obvious. GNR wrapped their 28-month Use Your Illusion tour in August 1993. By then, they had dealt with boycotts, riots, stage fires, fried vocal cords, near-death experiences, and lineup changes. Guitarist Izzy Stradlin had quit the band in November 1991. He'd gotten sober and couldn't deal with his bandmates' addictions and Axl Rose's axleness. Their reputations had worsened. Their relationships were tenuous. Rose's love affair with Stephanie Seymour soured too. Their split was hardly amicable. After separating in 1993, Rose sued Seymour, claiming she assaulted him at a 1992 Christmas party. She filed a countersuit claiming he'd assaulted her. They settled out of court, but the following year, Rose's ex-wife, Erin Everly, filed a suit accusing Rose of physical and emotional abuse during their relationship. That lawsuit was also settled out of court. GNR's follow-up album to Use Your Illusion, 1993's The Spaghetti Incident, was a collection of punk and glam rock remakes. It contained a hidden track, a cover of an old song by convicted murderer Charles Manson. That went over about as well as you'd think. The record got decent reviews, but it's their worst-selling album. Soon after, the Gunners released the video for the illusion single Estranged, a nine-and-a-half-minute ballad stuffed with multiple verses and piano and guitar solos. The third video in director Andy Morahan's trilogy for the band, after Don't Cry and November Rain, Estranged was even more expensive than November Rain, rumored to have cost $4 million. In the video, you'll find a full-size oil tanker, a helicopter ocean rescue, SWAT teams, Axel arrested and taken to a clinic for therapy, and Slash walking on water like some sort of metal messiah. Seymour was out of the picture, and Rose was over women. He insisted on dolphins instead. At the end of the video, he jumps into the sea and swims away with them. Even Morahan thinks the whole thing's a mess. He lost his way. It was like picking up shards of glass and trying to stick them back together. Yeah, I was floundering in that video. Yeah. Dolphins for the sake of it. Why? I can't explain that even now, other than Axel didn't want a girl in the video. He'd rather have a dolphin. You know, I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, to me, estranged is like everything's broken. I've had to close that off in my mind for years. Otherwise, I'd be in therapy. Rose would become more of a dictator, reportedly purchasing the rights to the band's name in 1997. Slash claimed he and the other band members had signed it over because Rose had threatened not to perform at a show during the Use Your Illusion tour. Gilby Clark, who'd replaced Izzy Stradlin, was out of the group by 1995. Slash officially quit it in 1996. Matt Sorum and Duff McKagan were gone by 1997. The original lineup was no more. Rose and new members slowly worked on fresh material, but their next album would sit in purgatory for years. Axel retreated you know, to Latigo Canyon or Latigo Canyon, wherever he lives, and then didn't really want to engage with the world or anybody for a while. You know, he'd become so big and so excessive so quickly, and there were so many pressures and, and you know, conflicts and but it went internally with the band and his personal life. I just think he retreated. He was just like, enough already. And that turned into 16, 18 years of, trying to make Chinese democracy. Of course, by April of 1994, Cobain was gone. He died by suicide, having shot himself at the age of 27. Less than three years after Nirvana had changed the music landscape forever, 
the band was done. Up next, after the break, we welcome former Nirvana manager Danny Goldberg to discuss the state of rock in 1992, the legacy of Nirvana and Nevermind, Cobain's conflicted relationship with MTV, and the tension between Cobain and Rose. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Where Were You in 92? We've been discussing Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, the end of hair metal, and the grunge explosion. Now it's time to hear more of Nirvana's side of the story, as we welcome Danny Goldberg, former Nirvana manager and author of the 2019 book, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. You were, uh, in a sense, the Kurt Whisperer. I think because I was older... And because I had early on recognized that he was really in love with Courtney, that it wasn't just a passing thing, I developed a role of a personal relationship with him that the other people in the business at that time didn't uh, didn't have. And he was under so much public scrutiny and everything that, you know, he became kind of shrunk the number of people he was talking to about certain things. And so that was part of my role. But, I, uh, you know, my day job was was overseeing the part of the A&R at Atlantic that involved trying to bring in, uh, you know, rock bands that that could be successful in the post-Nirvana music business. Tell me about the state of music in 1992. By 92, the record companies were looking for, quote-unquote, the next Nirvana. And, uh, and, and uh, there's no question that the differences between one kind of rock and roll and another are kind of exaggerated by anyone who's got an axe to grind. It, you know, they're all using guitars and amplifiers. But there was a cultural difference in the stance and there was a musical difference between the music that was uh, that was becoming the commercial music uh, on outlets like MTV, which was you know the biggest connector of fans to musicians in the early 90s. There was no question that Nevermind opened up a wide commercial lane for punk-influenced rock that hadn't existed before. And it marginalized, you know, a substantial percentage of some of the so-called hair bands. A lot of bands didn't survive the transition culturally, which had to do with the generational change. Why do you think there was such a divide between the Guns N' Roses and heavy metal 
sector and then the nirvana and grunge. Well, I think there were there there uh, the biggest thing is generational. You know, you think high school is 4 years. So to me, I always look at it, you know, people talk about what's how long is a generation in demographic terms, they usually think of 15, 20, 25 years, but to me in the music business, the generation is 4 years. How long high school is? And, and, you know, every time, every four or five years, there's a yearning of, of people who are 13, 14 and 15 to differentiate themselves from people that are five years older. So that's just number one. That's, 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 that's a permanent fixture of just the psychology of public during, you know, as long as I've been alive. Then there was the political environment of, of, of we, we were, we were, um, by 92, was the last of 12 years of Republicans in the White House, two terms of Ronald Reagan, one of uh, George H.W. Bush. There was the Gulf War uh, had happened at the beginning of Bush's term. And there was a generation of people that felt like outsiders from, you know, the the sort of conservative uh, political consensus. And they felt um, a desire to differentiate them themselves. Uh, then there was also the evolution of of sexual roles and and what it was to be a man. And, and you know, one of the things that uh, Courtney had said to me early on when I met her after she was dating Kurt is that she thought, you know, Kurt was really going to one of his missions was, you know, the feminization of rock, the, the, the challenging the, the the idea of what manliness was from the uh, from the images on MTV of guys who'd obviously spent a lot of time at the gym and were wearing their cutoff, showing showing their muscles and and and, uh, you know, uh, wearing black leather and talking about women as uh, sort of, uh, you know, objects and the strain of punk that had inspired Kurt. And and also inspired Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and a lot of the other bands that emerged in the night in '92, which which included the Riot Girls, uh, you know, the influence of uh, of uh, feminism, the influence of the gay rights movement, and a real challenge to that idea of uh, macho maleness as being the coolest thing. So you had the sort of cultural changes involving sexuality, you had the generational changes, and you had the political changes. And you had had uh, a decade in the 80s of this germinating uh, uh, American punk rock culture that never was very big commercially, mm-hmm. but had a tremendously intense influence on the on the cult of fans that it did have, artists like the Black Flag and Dead Kennedys and Fugazi um, and and a number of others uh, who who um, it was a laboratory for creativity for the previous decade coming from that subculture. Those were not artists who were written about in Rolling Stone or whose videos were on MTV for the most part, but they played clubs. And then there's the mystery of creative genius that just pops up in certain people at certain times. And and they they have a lot of influence when those human beings come along. And this was manifest by the variety of radio stations that played Smell Like Teen Spirit. It was the quintessential magical song that crossed a lot of uh, boundaries. You know, you, your team, and even, you know, even Kurt and the band did still want to be popular. They did want to be bigger. You know, he obviously understood he needed MTV, but he also understood MTV needed him. But it was... It was definitely a struggle for him. Tell me a little bit about that. The main people he dealt with, particularly Amy Finnerty, who was sort of designated by MTV to be the Nirvana person, but also Judy McGrath, who was president of MTV. He had never had a problem with them as human beings. He he had a problem balancing three different things, one of which was his own inner voice as an artist, which was the number one thing to him. Number two is he had a tremendous amount of respect for the punk culture from which he had emerged and did not want to disrespect it. He didn't want to leave it. He wanted those people to still be his fans. And he uh, he wanted to be uh, a big, big rock star. There's no question about it. If you look at the Kurt Cobain journals, you know, he was when he was a teenager, he was doing uh, drawings, showing uh, Nirvana headlining big places and things like that. You know, he he um, he wanted all of that. So an MTV embodied all those contradictions sometimes they'd ask him to do something like an award show which to him was kind of an anathema compared to the sort of punk ethos on the other hand if he was watching him there was one time i i tell the story but you know he called me because he'd been watching mtv and he'd seen uh 
more Pearl Jam videos than Nirvana videos and wanted to know were they mad at him or what, what do we do about this? You know? So, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, had those contradictions. He's not the only artist who's been conflicted between a desire to be a pure artist and a, and, and, and a very successful one. But a lot of, when you look at Nirvana's career, you look at Unplugged, you know, one of their most important albums, you know, an MTV special, you look, it smells like teen spirit. It's hard to think about that song without thinking about that video. So, uh, you know, uh, some of the most famous moments happened on some of those award shows. Um, uh, so they were they were a big part of his career and he knew it. You write in the book that Kurt associated, you know, certain values, you know, with Guns N' Roses and heavy metal bands that he didn't endorse. Uh, in addition to the music, he, he was incredibly sophisticated about the cultural symbolism that connected an artist to an audience. And he really wanted, and he was particularly conscious at that moment in time of having left an indie label, Sub Pop Records, and signed to this major label, Geffen Records, gone with managers. He really wanted to be consistent in the message he was sending culturally about his, uh, what we would call today, brand you know, word he would have been horrified by, but that's kind of today how people describe their image, you know. And uh, I don't think he wanted to uh, have anecdotes or photos about uh, uh, that would make his uh, punk audience and punk fans feel that he was uh, leaving them or betraying them. There was this different camps, and he wanted to be kind of loyal to and, the exp and, and a thought leader of his camp. I think five years later, it would have been a completely different thing because those things are temporary. But in the moment, there was a real difference between coming and embracing the punk culture and embracing the, you know, kind of macho, what he perceived as the macho rock and roll culture. The line, with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now. Entertain us. What does that line mean to you? I, I thought it was a commentary on the shallowness of the people in high school that he didn't like and people like that. It was kind of the cool people joining together to, to, to focus on what they thought the shallowness was of people that were um, uh, just into superficial entertainment, you know, as opposed to uh, deeper matters of, the heart and mind, you know, and, 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 and so on. It was sort of a snobbish commentary on idiots. It was, it was a comment on the shallowness of groupthink as opposed to the soulful brothers and sisters that, you know, were the us as opposed to the them. How would you sum up the legacy and impact of, 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 of Nirvana in 92 in particular, you know, the impact of Nevermind and Smells Like Teen Spirit? Look, rock and roll had been around since the middle of the 50s, and it was getting, uh, uh, it, it was starting to fade as as having real cutting edge cultural power because it had been so popular for so many decades and had become formulaic like all genres get at a certain point. And uh, he and the uh, rest of Nirvana figured out a way to reinvent it for for uh, for the nineties. He uh, he took some of the energy of punk rock and uh, and and merged it with uh, mass communication skills, and and created art that uh, spoke to uh, you know was very entertaining, which he wanted to be, but which also spoke to uh, kind of a redefinition of what masculinity and a critique of bigotry of any kind, uh, particularly. Uh, uh, misogyny and homophobia at that moment uh that was uh that was the first time somebody uh who had access to a global mass audience was saying those things in that way uh but but the other legacy is just these are great musical artists you know they the world produces these people. The genre of pop music produces them every once in a while. Chuck Berry was one. Uh, Bob Marley was one. John Lennon was one. Bob Dylan was one. And uh, I don't know who else other people would put on that list, but I don't think there's anyone that wouldn't put Kurt Cobain on that list. It's it's a it's a list of people who you took took music into into a deeper place while maintaining a mass audience, you know. And he was that guy for that moment. I see people in their teens and 20s wearing Nirvana t-shirts 
almost every day. Something about what he did transcended time. Revisiting the stories of Guns N' Roses and Nirvana, and specifically that fraught, fateful night of the 1982 VMAs, doesn't so much excite me as bum me out. And not just because both stories entail tragedies. Call me a Pollyanna, but in an ideal world, rock fans would never have had to choose between these two bands. But I'd also like to think plenty of rock fans didn't choose. Nothing Lasts Forever podcast host Tara Reader and Robin Petering didn't. Music journalist and critic Eric Weisbar didn't. November Rain director Andy Morahan didn't. Hell, even Dave Grohl ultimately didn't. GNR and the former Nirvana drummer, who taunted Axl Rose and called the November Rain video a train wreck, seemed to have buried the hatchet. Grohl has collaborated and performed with Guns N' Roses, including returning members Slash and Duff McKagan in recent years. Grohl even lent his old pal Axl his elaborate performance throne after the singer broke his foot. I certainly didn't choose. I can fully respect and appreciate Nirvana's impact. It is mind-blowing and undeniable. But I can also say I wholeheartedly, unironically, love November Rain and its video. It remains one of my all-time faves. For Morahan, November Rain also transcended time. People say to me, oh, you know, what makes a great video? Well, no, you need the right artist at the right time with the right song. And if you can get the, all those stars aligned, you get a home run. There are very few home runs in the pop cultural landscape, and I think this was one of them. It resonated, and I think it still resonates because it has a kind of slightly timeless quality about it. Yes, Rose was problematic. But at the end of the day, both Cobain and Rose were flawed, damaged men who poured their guts into their music, very publicly confronting their demons, albeit in very different ways, and hoping listeners would understand and accept them and maybe find a kindred spirit in them. One can draw a line in the sand and go, oh yeah, you know, end of hair rock, beginning of grunge. They're kind of indivisible. It's just a different approach to life. A lot of these bands aren't that different. They just wear different clothes and have a slightly different outlook on life. But they're still fucking rock and roll bands who want to make loud music. Adds Weisbard. What absolutely fails at the level of rock albums is also the thing that kept Guns N' Roses eternally fresh for new generations of music fans because November Rain turned out to be one of those musical experiences that a lot of people enjoy having. In some (laughs) ways, you could argue that although it was maybe not his goal, Axl Rose didn't make a great rock album to follow up on Appetite for Destruction, but he did make a music video to follow up on Thriller. I would argue that November Rain is sort of a little bit in that category. That is one one way that pop works, um, is that a a certain kind of song can escape um, the moment of its creation and just have a kind of afterlife all of its own. Weisbard goes on to argue that listeners these days don't give genre the power it had in 1992. Pop is no longer a dirty word, nor is metal. Pianos are cool. Synthesizers are very cool. Alternative doesn't mean anything anymore. Alternative to what? As genres fuse together and influence one another, as once maligned genres are reconsidered and reinvented in cool new ways, genre purism sometimes feels like it's going extinct. It's all flipped and flopped and mixed and remixed. Um, But what we do do, I think, as individual listeners is we make just decisions about. what makes us feel connected to something. I don't think that anyone listening to November Rain these days is thinking at all about Nirvana, is thinking at all about questions of corporate rock and <laughs> indie culture. If they're thinking about something, it's not that. Um, and and so, you know, that is that is something that happens over time. In a lot of ways that version of 90s culture is less tied to remembering a scene, less tied to remembering a genre, and is more 
just a, a free floating thing in and of itself that, um, so far as we can tell, still has a ways to go before the helicopter is going to land and the and the and the video will finally be over. For a certain segment of the population, Guns N' Roses' nine-minute power ballad opus "November Rain" showed up when it was supposed to. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time actually served it well. It was really like nothing else in 1982, and is like nothing else now. Epic, unruly, and ridiculously extravagant. It spins along on its axis in its own vast and infinite universe. Maybe some things do last forever. was a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jason Lafier, with editing and sound design by Michael Alder June. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.